some time ago, um, my dad, who was a pastor, had a friend, and this friend was, was quite wealthy, and one day, my dad's friend phoned him and was in a panic. I mean, he was, he was completely distraught, and he said, they've taken my son, and uh, I don't know what they've done with him, but they have, they've, they've sent a ransom note. They're making demands if I'm ever to see him again. The next while was just a time of absolute turmoil, and it didn't turn out well at all. But I remember my, my dad telling me the story and just being overwhelmed by the, the awfulness of such a thing that someone would take someone and would demand a ransom for that person. Luke 12 or Luke 22, as I said, said, Satan has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Satan made a demand and uh, was demanding that there be some kind of payment. Apparently, by what we read in that verse, he was demanding that he should have Peter, that he should have Simon, that Simon was his, and that he had the right to require ownership of Simon or um, control over his destiny. What, what did Jesus mean when he said he, he wants to sift you as wheat if he doesn't mean that he wants to just shake Simon and, and leave him um, as, as just you know the crumbles of, of what he once was? On this Resurrection Sunday, I want to ask the question, what happened there? What was the death of Christ all about and then his resurrection? So the theology of the New Testament claims that the resurrection of Christ proves and, and kind of clarifies all that was happening by the death of Christ. And so over the years, theologians and pastors and ordinary folks like us um, have asked the question, well, what exactly happened? And there's, there's a broad doctrine called the doctrine of atonement. And inside the doctrine of atonement, people have suggested that the scriptures seem to describe what Jesus did in different ways. Probably all of the views or theories of the atonement are true. They, they become a collage, like our, our music today. They become a collage of um, different aspects that contribute to one big picture, one beautiful picture. So if you were to ask theologians, well, what happened? What, what was the atonement? Well, some might say, well, the atonement of Christ was about him being the victor. So there's a theology called Christus Victor, which means Christ the victor. And some would say, well, that was what happened. That was what the atonement was. It was about Christ being the victor. Others would say, well, no, it, it was all about Jesus being the substitute. Uh, and there's so much in the Bible that says that we had something that was due us, and a substitute was provided so that we wouldn't have to bear the punishment of, of our sin. Others enjoy the idea of Christ being the healer, that he came to heal all that was broken, all that was uh, sick 
in our world. Some would just say, well, he, he was the offering. He came to be the final offering. And he was, somehow or other, he was the acceptable offering that fulfilled all of the offerings that there were um, for the thousands of years before that. I want to put up the idea that Jesus came to be our ransom. And of all of the things that we might chat about concerning models of the atonement, this might be the hardest one for us to swallow. How in the world could Christ have been required to be a ransom? So we've been thinking about Peter and what Peter tells us long after the events that have been depicted in in the spoken word, what Peter tells us is this, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Jesus was a ransom. How is it that the death of Christ was in any way the payment of a ransom? To whom was the ransom paid? Did, did Satan really have the right, uh, first of all, to demand Simon? Did he have the right somehow to demand Christ as a ransom? It takes us way back to the story of uh, the Garden of Eden and our, our very first failure, where even though we were created in God's image and had a beautiful place to live, and we're able to have fellowship with him day by day by day, we rebelled. Um, somehow or other, we are complicit in what needed to be worked out to fix the problem that was created in the garden. In some way, we might say that we were complicit in the demand that then required a ransom. You know, maybe sometimes if you're watching a TV show and someone has been kidnapped, uh, the the plot takes an interesting turn and you discover that the person that presumably had been kidnapped was actually part of the gig. It was, it was all set up, that the person set up her own or his own kidnapping. Well, in some ways, that's exactly what we did. We were complicit. We joined in the rebellion. We joined in in sort of the stealing of humanity from the one who legitimately owned humanity. So even though God made us and we are his people and we were created in his image, we decided to follow somebody else. And we were taken by that person in into a place of existence and a place of destiny that demanded um, there be something that would be done by God to address the situation if he were to have what he wanted to have. We are God's legitimate property, and we've been stolen, and we went willingly when the captor came along. And so all the way later, when Peter is writing, he said, you know, one of the ways that we can describe what it was that Jesus did is that he ransomed us. In fact, 
way back before the creation of the world, God appointed him as the ransom. God somehow or other entered into a deal with Satan. I say that really, really carefully, but somehow or other, and as we try to sort through um, the existence of evil, the existence of sin, and the existence of free will, and uh, whether we are able to make our own choices or if they're made for us, when, when we sort all of that through, somehow or other, there is, and there's not a good biblical word, but there's a deal that is made between God and Satan. And the result of that deal is that God agrees to pay a ransom. That's hard to even accept into our minds. It's it's hard to grasp. And yet Peter says, but don't you understand that he was the ransom that was paid for us? Now, was the ransom paid to Satan? Was the ransom paid to the law? Was the ransom paid to God himself? There are all kinds of discussions that go on about that. But nonetheless, we're left with the great truth that Jesus came to be our ransom. And and the thing that we need to apply to ourselves above everything else is to understand that the value of those who were taken away from God to whom we properly belonged, the value of those people was worth God paying the ransom of his son's life. That There has been no demand that ever has come close to the demand that was made or the demand that was met as God met the ransom requirements for our freedom, for our salvation. Peter knew this full well because Peter knew. He remembered the prayer that Jesus prayed. Satan has demanded to have you. And, and, and Jesus doesn't say, and so Simon, don't worry because it's, you're not his to have. Back earlier in the life of Jesus, we find him in conversation with Satan and Satan is promising him things. Satan is saying to him, look, look at all the kingdoms of, of this earth. I tell you what, I'll give them to you if you will bow down before me. And Jesus doesn't say they're not yours to give. He, he contests him with what God has said and what God has stipulated. But he doesn't say, no, they're not yours to give. Nor does he say to Simon, you know, um, you're not to be given to Satan. But he said, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith will sustain you and, and later on strengthen your brethren. That's what happened uh, by the shores of Galilee, by the shores of Tiberias, that Peter turned around and was able to restore his, his fellow followers of Christ. Jesus is our ransom. If you were to, to follow the term in the New Testament, you would find another word that is used for the word ransom is the simple word um, redeemer. Now, that's where we would rather turn and say, boy, I think I, can, I think I can somehow or other get my head around that more than this ransom idea. But nonetheless, ransom is the term 
that is used through the teaching of the New Testament and the word redeemed. So ransomed and redeemed, they almost become synonyms and they maybe again help us to, to understand what, what the importance of, of this realization is for us. The word redeemed was usually a word that was employed in the slave market. So if, if I was taken as a slave um, and someone wanted to, to purchase me, it would be said that they would redeem me. So they would pay the price that I might be released from the obligation that I had or the obligation that was upon me, um, that I would be released from the ownership of the person before me. And one of the things we understand is that all of us were born into slavery. So we all were born indentured. We, we were born belonging to someone else. And we were born belonging to someone that God is not pleased for us to belong to. I remember many years ago in South India, I had the opportunity, a terrible opportunity, to visit um, a salt mine, uh, a place where, where salt was, was, was sort of carved out of this mountain, this gleaming, white, shining mountain. And it was a, a place in, in the heat of that climate that was just devastating. And there were people who were literally born into the slavery of mining the salt mountain. They had no hope of being able to, to work their way out. They were born with enough of a debt upon them that they did not hope even through all of their lifetimes to be able to pay off the debt. They expected to be born into, to live in, and, and to die in the awful circumstances of their lives. And there was a little church where people who were part of this, this sad community uh, were brought you know, some help from people that would come and try to bring them nourishment and bring them all that they could, some education for their children and so on. But nonetheless, they were people who were slaves, who even knew that these days there would be such a kind of, of person. And, and we know that there are. Jesus is our ransom, and he's also our redeemer. He has been willing to be the price to set us free from our captivity um, in this sordid um, ownership that has come about by, by our own complici complicity back at the beginning. He also has come to be our redeemer to set us free from um, the one that owned us. And again, the Bible doesn't say, no, don't worry, Satan doesn't really own you. We, we, we get it that what Satan did was such an atrocity um, by which he, he does lay claim to this world. And it was necessary for such a powerful act as the death of Jesus to actually loosen Satan's grip on the world. And Satan, although he has been finally defeated, is in his death throes and still is trying to exert his ownership, his his mastery of this world but Peter says long after the events of, of the gospels 
Peter says, do you understand that he's your ransom? That, that God was willing to pay, oh, not a ransom of perishable things like silver and gold. No, but with the precious blood of Christ. That was what was used to pay for your ransom. Do you know that you've been redeemed? Not by corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Christ. We have been bought back. When you are bought back, um, there's every opportunity in, in the day in which all of this would have taken place. There's every opportunity that you might be bought again by some other slave owner. Or perhaps the person that pays off the first owner now puts you in captivity and says, well, if you think you had it bad before, watch what's going to happen to you now. We were bought back, but we were bought back to belong to God. And we were bought back to be free from former masters. So there again, who are the formal, former masters? Satan is, you know, one of the characters in the drama. There's also the law and sin. And the New Testament tells us that, do you not know, now you've been set free from these laws. You've been set free from these masters. And you were a slave to sin. But now you've been set free. But you haven't been set free to be in bondage again, says Paul. You haven't been set free to be in bondage to the fear that you once had over the law that you couldn't keep. But you've been set free um, to the result that you're able to say, Abba, Father. You've been set free into a relationship. So the God who has freed you by the blood of Christ says, I'm not going to put you in bondage anymore. I'm going to literally set you free to be all that I created you to be and all that I had a dream for you to be. What happened when Jesus died? What happened was the most astonishing thing in all of time and history. In the whole universe, it, it, it's, it's what everything focuses on. One of the ways that we think of that is that Jesus was our ransom. One of the ways we think of it is that he was our redeemer, along with all of the other ways in which we were powerfully impacted by the death of Christ. I, I want to finish by telling you what's probably the most familiar illustration that preachers have used ever. So now I've got you intrigued. It's, it's the story of a little boy and a boat. story is that this little boy had worked for a long, long time to build a beautiful little boat, a little sailboat, using wood and canvas and so on. And he used to take that sailboat to the river and then just watch how the sailboat would would uh, just you know glide through the waters and how the breezes would move that little sailboat along and the story says that one day um, a particular current came and carried his sailboat away downstream and the little boy ran as hard as he could to try to chase his sailboat to try to retrieve it but he got away from him and at the end of the day, he gave up and figured he had lost his boat. Sad, sad day. 
He realized it would take weeks and weeks to rebuild a boat, and he didn't know if he had a heart to do that, but he just let it go in, in its sadness. One day, as he was walking home from school, he came to a shop, and in the window of the shop, he saw a sailboat that looked exactly like his sailboat. And the closer he got, the more he examined it, he said, that, that is my sailboat. That's the sailboat I built. It's mine. So he went into the store, and he said, the, um, the sailboat in your window, that, that's mine. And the shopkeeper shook his head. No. And the boy said, well, it is mine. I, I made that. I built that. The shopkeeper says, well, no, I remember where it came from. There's a person who came, and oh, yeah, the person did find it somewhere in the river, but he sold it to me. So now it's mine. And if you want to have it, you're going to have to pay for it. And the boy protested, well, that's not fair. I built that boat. It's mine. And the shopkeeper said, no, it's mine. If you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. So dismayed, the little boy went home, and he got out his piggy bank, dumped it on his bed or whatever, and counted out, and he had enough. He had enough to pay the price on his sailboat. So he went back to the shop. And he said, all right, here you go. Here's the money. Even though I made this sailboat myself, here's the money. So, so now I can have it, right? The shopkeeper said, absolutely. He went to the window, picked it up and brought it and handed it to the boy. And the boy stood there with his sailboat and just gazed at it. And he said, you're mine. You're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. You know why that's a good illustration? Just simple, isn't it? Because that's the truth. God looks at us and he says, you're mine. You're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. How do we respond to Easter? We respond with hearts that would burst with joy at all of the intricacies of what was happening on the cross and in the empty grave. That all sort of augur towards the enormous work of grace and mercy and love towards us from God our Father. We messed up big time. We were complicit in this whole thing. It's, it's not even that it just happened to us. We were part of it. And honestly, we look at ourselves and say, we're still part of it. I mean, we still keep messing up. Our world keeps messing up. And God is looking at his world, his created world, and he's saying, I want you to be twice mine. I want you to be mine because I made you. I want you to be mine because I bought you. And it cost me everything. The precious blood of my son was the price that I paid in this awful drama of the fall of humanity and its restoration. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed, right? Amen.